Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, podcast for pediatric critical care and the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Amy Romer, and I'm a cardiac intensivist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And my name is Monica Mopla, a nurse practitioner in the CVICU at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, Stanford. We are also members of the PCICS podcasting committee. Today, we have the opportunity to speak with Katsuhide Maeda, who is an associate professor of cardiothoracic surgery and director of mechanical circulatory support at ECMO at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and John Dykes, who is an assistant professor of cardiology specializing in heart failure, transplant, and mechanical support, and medical director of the ventricular assist device program at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford. They will be speaking to us today about the use of ventricular assist devices in patients with single ventricle physiology. Thank you so much, John and Katz, for joining us. This episode is sponsored by the Children's National Heart Institute. Before we start, please note that many of the topics we discussed today will be off-label in pediatrics. So Katz, I'd like to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first got started with the use of VADs in single ventricle patients? Hi, uh, thank you very much for the introduction, Amy. Hi, everybody. My name is Kat Maeda. I'm a pediatric CT surgeon at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. My VAD experience started when I was at Stanford. I did a fellowship at Stanford from 2007 to 2010. And at that time, that was the start of the Berlin Heart Pediatric Device. The first pediatric VAD device implant was around 2004 placement. Around 2009, we had a patient status post-Fontaine and underwent aortic valve replacement. And then unfortunately, after the aortic valve replacement, patient developed the coronary artery uh, narrowing and ischemia and then developed a severe ventricular dysfunction. Those days, the constant single ventricular valve did not exist. However, that was before that surgery, the patient was doing well, that it seems that purely this patient is struggling from the ventricular dysfunction. That was why that we had no idea that this works or not, that we decided to put ventricular assist device on on-time patients. Actually, those days that you know, we did not have even HeartMate 2 or, of course, hardware, so we used PVAL. And then that, that patient, we had no idea that how to manage that postoperatively. However, that patient relatively went well and then that a successfully transplant. That was the eye-opening to me. And then that was 2009 when I was a fellow. And then that you know, next year, the following year, I became an attending. And then at that time, I was thinking, what should I focus like uh, as a junior attending the next 10 years, I wanted to do something new, something that people think that it's almost impossible or something that, you know, I want to be innovative. So that was why that, you know, that has decided to start focusing on single ventricular valve. How has you, have you seen the field evolve over the course of your career? So going from that initial trial to where we are right now? Very good question. Around 2010, when we start doing that, you know, start tackling a single ventricular VAD, we did not have any data, but we thought probably supporting that failing stage one is going to be really difficult because of the size and because of its shunted physiology. 
And then that also we thought that maybe like, you know, Fontan, supporting the Fontan also can be really tough. So that is why that those days, ironically, we thought, or oh, maybe the supporting the Glen may be the easiest thing. That is what we thought. Then that was why that the first couple of SWAT cases were actually like a failing Glen cases. The first case that we did after that Fontanvard case was a patient struggling with uh, shunted circulation. We switched to Glen and then put the, uh, put the ventricular assist device. Initially, that the first day or two, it looked well. However, after that, the patient developed, struggled a lot, and then that eventually we switched to ECMO, and then that patient did not make it. We had a couple of those cases after that, and then that we start really think that, oh, the GLEM can be really difficult to manage after the bath. Then that, you know, we start doing the, uh, putting the VAD on failing Fontan. And then that we got a couple of successful cases. Then that we start tackling also that a smaller baby, like a stage one. That is how we evolved. So John, tell us about how you originally got into the management of single ventricle VADs and also how you've seen the field of the medical management of these patients change over the course of your career. Thank you, Amy, and thank you everyone for having me. So I did my pediatric cardiology fellowship in Miami, Florida at Nicholas Children's Hospital, and then came out to Stanford in 2015 to do my heart failure and transplant fellowship. And it's at that point where Dr. Maeda and my paths overlapped quite a bit. So out here, as Dr. Maeda already mentioned, we were already in the mentality of how can we expand our capabilities with mechanical circulatory support in a variety of populations. And Stanford has a long history of doing that. One thing that we started to see after that 2009 initial case for us is that not only here, but all around the country, the number of patients that were being attempted uh, to be supported with a, with a single ventricle VAD was increasing. And so just to give you a sense of the numbers, so in 2019, actually last year at ICHLT, Jenna Murray, one of our bad coordinators here, she did an abstract that looked at the incidence of bad support in single ventricle patients listed for transplant. She found that there's 16% of single ventricle patients that are listed for transplant that receive an SVAD. And that number really has been going up since 2009. There's been a PDMAX analysis that's shown that. In general, if you look at the overall outcomes for single ventricle patients, they're similar to all congenital heart disease patients, so biventricular congenital heart disease. But when you start to look at the subgroup analysis, you see that the stage two and the stage one patients have much worse outcomes. And we certainly saw that firsthand. And I think a lot of people saw that as they started supporting Fontans and then saw that with the Glens and the unrepaired single Vs were much more difficult. And so why is this population so difficult? Well, certainly there's a lot of things that lead to myocardial injury and eventual dysfunction. There's multiple, oftentimes repetitive uh, insults, including volume and pressure loading, uh, chronic cyanosis, potential coronary ischemia, and that sort of chronic upregulation of the renin angiotensin system that all results in in sort of a multifactorial cause of these patients doing poorly. 
And the exact nature of how they fail is different by stage, as we know. And so when I got out here, we were you know, very aggressive about trying to figure out when was the optimal timing to deploy bad support and signal ventricles, and also what was the patient population that we should be targeting. And that really led us to, uh, as Katz was mentioning, start you know, seeing what things worked with various patient populations. And certainly, as Katz mentioned, our initial, uh, initial experience was with a Fontan SFAD. And then subsequently, we ended up moving on to the smaller patients. I, th I think if you look in general at the, our entire arc, it probably mimics a lot of other people's arc in terms of the timing of our implant. Our first patient was on ECMO and was very, very sick on multiple anotropes. And I think this in general happens when we start trying to support new high-risk populations. Initially, we sometimes wait until the last minute when they're on ECMO because we know the bad support option is unknown and oftentimes unappealing. Uh, and eventually we start to modify our techniques and patient selection. And, and I think that's really what we did here at Stanford, both when Dr. Mayo was here and, and what we've been doing recently. And, you know, in terms of the outcomes, if you look at the early outcomes for single Vs, in 2013, there was a multi-center report that showed that there was an overall survival of 42% with only 10% roughly of the stage one patients surviving. And that increased with each stage, but certainly still very inferior outcomes to what we would expect for bad support. We subsequently looked at this again recently in the last couple of years, and, and those outcomes have improved. Um, and there's some evidence recently with some reports showing that the stage one patient's survival is, is increasing, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And so I think what we've really seen is a major shift in both what we're able to take on based on our experience and also refining our patient selection, both in timing and patient risk in terms of comorbidities. And I've seen that change over the course of my seven years here. Thanks, John. When you're talking sort of about the timing for implant, what have you seen specifically with timing that's improved? That ha Have you seen improvement with implant? Are we still implanting in very uh, critically ill patients on ECMO? Has the medical team been able to identify early indicators that get us to the OR earlier? And are you seeing that reflective in the survival rates? Well, I think our numbers are still small right now. We are trying to increase our numbers through action to sort of do the, the subgroup you know, risk analysis. But I do think that we're learning more about trying to, of course, avoid ECMO. Certainly there are times where you can't avoid ECMO and you have a patient that goes on to ECMO and needs a bridge to an SFAD, and that certainly happens. But we have tried to, you know, identify patients using an algorithm that basically detects evidence of ongoing heart failure and the likelihood that we're going to be able to maintain that patient's circulation for the time period that we need to get that patient a heart. And those are obviously the most coarse one is going to be you're on ECMO and your inability to wean from ECMO. That's that's an easy one. But when you're on two or more vasoactive infusions, or if you have one vasoactive infusion and you're having feeding intolerance, end organ dysfunction, you're intubated, certainly arrhythmias play into to the decision to go, or profound irritability and lethargy, or the baby's just not developing normally. And those are indicators that you, you should consider in, in deploying, you know, VAD support in these patients. 
I think one of the things that I've learned from the stage one and the stage two patients is that you kind of have to catch these patients on their way down. This is not a patient population that you can let get very sick and hope that you implant a VAD and you're going to be able to recover them significantly. If you look at the experience in those patients, we're oftentimes you know, dealing with pretty short durations of support in the successful outcomes. And I think the goal is to try to catch the patient before they get too sick, rather than try to get a patient that you're going to do a bridge to candidacy. And hopefully you can use the VAD to support them long enough to get to the transplant, rather than thinking that we're going to get significant physical and nutritional rehabilitation. I just haven't seen that in the smaller patients. And I think the overall goal should be to try to get the patient before they develop the organ dysfunction or become significantly debilitated. Yeah, that is very good point. Because I think that you know, nowadays, that complication related to bad, like for example, like a stroke, I mean, or that devastating complication is getting much, much less. So that is why that, you know, rather than waiting till like a patient becomes really sick, it's better to use a VAT, I mean, that as soon as possible. What I keep always that now that in the meeting, what I keep telling is that rather than being too late, it's better to be too, even too early because complication related to VAT itself is getting much, much less. So that being said, and also ironically, if patient preoperatively, if the patient is doing well without much complications in the comorbidities, those patients do well even after the VAT implant. If the patient is really sick at the time of VAT implant, those patients may not do well. For example, for stage one patient, if we have a newborn who has a, like a lot, like a, some ventricular dysfunction or some valve rigors, if we don't think the patient is a good, good candidate for stage one, now that my strategy is that doing hybrid and also at the same time with the hybrid, we just put VAT even though before patient is not even like a, you know, inotrope dependent or anything, but we know that it's better to put the VAT when the patient is doing relatively well. At the point that we think that the patient is, a can, is going to the transplant pathway for stage one patient, we just put VAT. The same thing in stage two, like a Glen patient. We don't have to wait till patient becomes really sick. If we think that, you know, oh, patient is, is not going to Fontan, is going to the uh, transplant pathway, probably it's maybe better to just put the VAT because like I said, that complication related to VAT is becoming much and much less. I agree 100%, Katz. I think that there's a combination here of things that results in a kind of vicious cycle where the general lack of appetite for SVADs based on our historical outcomes along with the potential counter arguments and patients that are less sick, well, maybe we can try this or maybe we can give more time, results in a scenario that oftentimes we end up getting the very sick patients because we try something else or we try to wait or we go after collaterals. And in the end, sometimes the better thing to do is to go proactive. I, I think the, the statement you made about the, you know, the stage one patients, the hybrid stage one bad implantation is important because if you look at like the Florida experience with Joe Phillips and Dr. Blyweiss, they have taken an approach where they've implanted the hybrid VAD in a number of patients, uh, 
two thirds of their patients roughly have ended up having a, a good outcome with that strategy. So a 66% survival um, taking that approach. And I think that's an approach that certainly results in a good outcome, but I think it does spark the big debate about how good are we at predicting who will do poorly in their stage one procedure? What exact degree of TR would push you towards the MCS as opposed to transplant route? And, and I think that that's part of the problem that results in this sort of inevitable situation at times where we end up getting a very sick patient because we're just not confident in that early implantation strategy just yet. Another thing is that you know, we can think of is that you know, putting the VAT even in a small baby does not necessarily mean that you know, that patient needs to go to transplant pathway. One patient that I did was that there's a small baby who has very small, uh, very abnormal mitral valve. Then that, you know, I put LVAD with transeptal atrial cannulation technique as a bridge to decision. The thought was that, you know, even though that, you know, we are not sure that patient has also, that patient has abnormal valves as well, by putting the VAD transeptally, we do not have to compromise the left ventricle. And then that, but we hope that the patient can grow. And then that, you know, to make a decision that the patient needs transplant, or maybe we can just do the valve surgery. So here, what we have to think is that putting the VAT does not necessarily mean the patient is going to transplant. The, I have not done that yet, but one scenario is that right after birth, if the patient is single ventricle not doing well, just put the ventricular assist device. And then if ventricular function recovers well, then that, you know, we can take out the bad and then that, you know, we can do the stage one. That is also that, you know, the possibility that, you know, we can think of. Yeah, and that proactive strategy for early implantation, especially in the small children is clearly the one that is showing us the best outcomes when we look at this data. Yeah, thanks to Bival. Bival was really game changer actually. Thanks to Vival, our you know, stroke rate is much, much less nowadays. So that is why that, you know, we can really justify to use that more often, even though that, you know, we are not really sure that patient really needs that. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the refinements in our management of these patients. More centers are using Vival as their primary uh, anticoagulant for the stage one and stage two SVADs. What we do for the older patients is eventually on the Fontan side, Fontan SVADs, we convert them to Coumadin as those are dischargeable devices. We're now going to include a message from the sponsor of today's podcast. Located in Washington, D.C. and consistently ranked among the best cardiology and heart surgery programs in the nation, the Children's National Heart Institute includes a multidisciplinary team providing specialized expertise and support of all facets of heart disease. Our dedicated cardiologists, cardiac surgeons, anesthesiologists, and cardiac intensivists care for children and adults with a wide range of congenital and acquired heart disease. Additional expertise in cardiac imaging, cardiac rhythm disorders, interventional cardiology, and adult congenital heart disease ensures the best care across the full spectrum of cardiac disease. The -the state-of-the-art cardiac ICU provides a high-tech environment and a family-friendly feel. Our physicians and nurses are experts in today's most advanced technologies for respiratory, neurologic, 
and cardiac conditions, and we have one of the country's busiest ECMO programs. A physician-focused virtual command center in the CACU allows doctors to monitor vitals and measure progress from afar. You can find additional information at their website at childrensnational.org slash heart institute. So Katz, you were starting to mention in your patient selection how you're doing some different cannulation strategies and maybe an unrepaired or unpalliated stage one through the atrial septum. Can you talk us through how you think of each patient's anatomy before you cannulate them and things you may consider to make you cannulate atrial versus ventricular? It's a very good point. Two ways of doing atrial cannulation and for the inflow, atrial cannulation and ventricular cannulation. For stage one patient, I'm not really sure that, you know, atrial cannulation or ventricular cannulation what I meant is that in some institutions that, you know, they do a ventricular cannulation, they can support well. But of course, that in like our data shows that even with atrial cannulation, we can support these patients very well. Advantage of the atrial cannulation is that, of course, that, you know, you can do without going on bypass. And then some patients that, you know, I did for hybrid VAD case. So those patients, actually like a, we can do even without blood transfusion because only what we need to do for the uh, atrial cannulation is put the pursing sutures on right atrium and then to prevent the air gets in sometimes i gave adenosine to stop the heart very briefly and then you can just open it and then you can just put the cannula in it just take and then you can just tie it so it just takes 30 seconds or so. And then that, you know, uh, outflow cannula, you can do just put by the side biting clamp on the main pulmonary trunk. So that is why, the, and those patients, if you just do the ventricular bad implant, if you don't use bypass and do not need blood transfusion, actually those patients, you can close the chest right away. And those patients do very, very well. So that is why that, you know, for those kind of patients, I prefer uh, atrial cannulation so that we can avoid use of the bypass. That, that makes a lot of sense. And you say it with such ease, like it's an, an easy thing to do, but we know that your uh, your cannulation times are fast in all. In I'm all not sure, drugs. but sometimes it's, sometimes it's tricky. Some anesthesiologists call it a ninja technique. I think that's an important point because all of what we do in the post-operative care all starts in the OR. And so everything we can see, you know, Dr. Maeda do in the OR, like minimize or avoid bypass time, you know, minimize bleeding, all that stuff really results in an easier post-operative patient, get the patient excavated quicker, which is obviously important in the stage twos and, you know, progress the patient at a more rapid pace. And it really all starts in the operating room with the anesthesiologists and our surgeons. For Glenn patient, now that I prefer ventricular cannulation, even though that, you know, we have to use bypass. The reason that, you know, the using a ventricular cannulation is that by putting the inflow onto the ventricle, we can get the better mixing. The glen circulation is very unique because saturated blood is coming from the pulmonary vein and desaturated blood is coming from the IVC. If you put the inflow on the right atrium, sometimes that you get the you get the desaturated blood 
from the IVC to the vet. And then that, you know, sometimes that we cannot get a good oxygenation in the patient. That is why that, you know, for grand bad patient, it's better to have really nice mixed blood. In that sense that, you know, we use, we, I now that prefer ventricular cannulation. And then the, for the fontan circulation, it's a little bit different. Fontan circulation is basically like the blood coming to the atrium is all just coming from the pulmonary vein. It's basically saturated blood. So that is why that, you know, actually even atrial cannulation or ventricular cannulation does not matter. That is what the, our also data suggests. In order to decompress well, ventricular cannulation may be slightly better. However, even with atrial cannulation that are for failing fontan, those VAT goes very well. When you talk about decompressing, I know sometimes we can talk about the use of a continuous flow device versus a pulsatile device. Have you seen a difference in one versus the other in better supporting the patient and in terms of their cardiac output and decompression? Very good point. When we go with the atrial cannulation, continuous flow pump, pulsatile pump, I don't see much difference. However, if you put the cannula on the ventricle, and then that if the patient has a lot of valve regurgitation, probably it's better to use continuous flow pump. Also that in, there's some inflow obstruction. What I meant is that if you see that some obstruction in the inflow, in the, even in the ventricle or atrium, probably by continuous flow pump, you may be able to get uh, more flow. However, that we did some experiments using sheep that, you know, comparison between continuous flow pump or pulsatile flow pump. And then based on that result, I use continuous flow pump a lot. However, now that, you know, I don't see much difference. So that is why that in, in stage one, stage two kids now, I preferably I use pulsatile pump. Yeah, and I think for the stage one kids, we've seen reports from different centers, University of Florida using primarily Berlin and other centers using, you know, continuous flow, paracorporal continuous flow devices, both getting improved outcomes. So I think it's still a little bit up in the air which one is going to be superior. And perhaps we could tease that out as things go forward with action. Probably, I think that it's kind of like institutional preference. Like, you know, if that institution is more used to burying heart, it's better to stick to burying heart. Each device has some, you know, like a unique characteristic. So that is why that, you know, if you don't use one type so often, it's better not to, that, you know, it's better to use the device that they are used to. And John, I heard you bringing up the Action Network. Uh, I would be curious if you could talk a little bit more about what the impact of national groups and collaboratives like Action Network have been on the care of patients, both surgically and medically. Yeah, so the Action Network is an online collaborative with multiple institutions across North America that have pooled their experience and effort to improve our outcomes in supporting kids with originally kids with ventricular assist devices, and it's since expanded uh, to patients with heart failure and patients going through transplant as well. And in the end, I think what you're hearing from both Katz and I is that we, we still have a lot to learn. And the only real way to do this 
when the number of implants, even the large center is so low as to pool our experience and see what's working at some centers and see what we can adopt as a community. Action is very well suited to do that both from a data standpoint and also from a dissemination of novel support strategies and nuances of care in these you know, rather temperamental patients as they have a lot of educational forums and the ability to exchange ideas all in an effort to improve and, and in large part standardize our approach to uh, these different types of patients. And so I think it's a, a, a very important aspect of how we move forward and, and learn from you know, our cumulative experience in these patients. Can you give any examples of projects through the Action Network that have focused on particular areas of care or have had success in standardizing in particular areas? Yeah, I mean, Action has tackled a number of aspects of VAD care, everything from, you know, dressing changes to anticoagulation protocols. You know, bivalorudin was something that we talked a little while ago. Um, Action had a role in, you know, sort of standardizing the, the bivalorudin protocol for VADs, blood pressure management, you know, discharge uh, checklists, communication checklists. It's really gone across, you know, a spectrum. I think at our institution, one thing we've utilized a lot is our communication checklists and making sure that we're very clear on what our goals are for the patients. In addition to that, we, we utilize a stroke checklist on every patient where we define their anticoagulation, their blood pressure goals, their risk of, you know, uh, stroke. And uh, that's done, you know, at rounds so that everybody's on the same page, including bedside nurse. So I think a lot of those tools are very valuable because the, the continuity of care for these patients is, is very crucial. And, and a lot of those tools allow for us to do that in a better way. But in general, action is tacking, tackling a lot of aspects of ad care that I think are going to improve the overall care for these children and families. Katz, in terms of collaboration from a surgical perspective, are there other forums that uh, have been places for discussion about some of these novel techniques and surgical approach that have helped with kind of dissemination of some of these new ideas? That's a very good point that Action Net- Network has its own email list. So if you have any question or if you have any patient that has, you know, the surgeon has no idea how to support they can post that case in that email list and then that you know other surgeon can jump in so it's very helpful to get some uh, opinion from other centers through action network emailing list yeah and i I think that's a strength too on the medical side i mean the the community is very connected there's a lot of you know things that you can post that perhaps you think nobody's seen and somebody will come and say you know we've seen this this is how we handled it and we've certainly utilized that and we've learned a lot from others posting things. And so I think it's a very collaborative online community that has a lot of upsides. We've talked a lot about collaboration, all the things that Action Network has done to improve all the things at the bedside through the whole continuum. Is there something that you guys focus from a multidisciplinary standpoint to make sure that your teams are on the same page? And dating back to when you were first doing these novel devices, these novel cannulations, how did you get these teams to be flexible, the nursing bedside to care for these patients, the anesthesiologist to work with you in the OR or the ICU team postoperatively? 
Did you find any challenges in that? Or did you find that you were able to do that successfully? It's 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 very tough question. And so it's very hard to the bottom line is that you know there's no other old no good alternative for those patients. Everybody actually is on board in the sense that you know they want they we really wanted to save that child. And then that you know we know that there's alternative is death. So that is why that you know everybody before surgery always we have some we have huddle and then that you know we talk about that patient in detail what is the best thing and then that also that you know we talk about in the past that did not work so then that what we should change and there's anything that anything new that we can do so in that kind of you know like a pre-op huddle and also that multidisciplinary discussion was really helpful and we always invite bedside nurses or in you know, OR nurses for that huddle and then that you know that kind of you know multidisciplinary meeting was so helpful so that we are on the same page in the same page in terms of a technique and also that we are in the same page that that everybody is want to save that child yeah that's what I thought the answer would be I think the team's all work together to do what they do best in cardiac ICUs in general, and that's to have the best outcome for the patients. Right. John, do you have anything to add from the multidisciplinary pre-operative huddles that you think would be important for people to include? Yeah, I think in general, I mean, it, it takes a village to take care of these patients throughout an entire heart center. And so there's a lot of stakeholders in the care of these patients. And when you're talking about these really difficult decisions and like Kat said, oftentimes these decisions aren't great options. At times they don't feel like, you know, they certainly don't feel like a slam dunk ever. And so making sure that we spend that time communicating to everybody, educating people on what we're seeing, making sure that we hear what their concerns are. And sometimes it comes down to picking the least worst option in these critically sick children and getting the entire team behind it and understanding what our expectations are for this, what are our contingency plans when things go wrong. And I think the huddle that we've employed um, here at Stanford with Katz being a big leader of that when he was here is making sure that we're all on the same page going into the operating room so that the post-operative plan is somewhat laid out and we can pivot depending on what we find. But I think it's a lot of conversation and making sure that all the stakeholders that are gonna care for this patient are on board with it as, as much as they can be. One question I had for each of you, maybe I'll start with Katz. What do you think are the, the current most pressing questions that you think the field really should be or is already working on to answer in the next five to 10 years? From my perspective, actually like initial phase of a single ventricular valve, what I meant is that how to support stage one, stage two, stage three till transplant. That is already done. What I meant is that now, of course, that you know, still we have to improve some small technique or something. But nowadays, I kind of feel like, uh, you know, even stage one, even stage two outcome is now much, much better. So now that we are going to phase two, that means that, you know, we have to start using VAT in single ventricular patient for more like a long term 
For example, now that we use for failing grain or failing fontan or something as a bridge to transplant, but more likely in future we have to, we may have to use, uh, you know, this device as destination therapy, or some patient, even like a kind of a successful fontan case, they over time they tend to develop lymphatic issues or some other PLE or something. So for those patients, probably like a long-term use of ventricular assist device may be helpful. So that is why I think that, you know, we now have to start thinking about more like a long-term use of ventricular assist device. Just perioperative period of Glen or Fontan. What I meant is that, you know, some patient struggles just immediate post-op fontan period. However, once that immediate post-op period is over, they may do well. So just for that short-term support, it may be useful to use some short-term ventricular assist device. Those are the kind of the next steps that you know we should tackle. Yeah, I think I think one of the things we've already touched on, which is refining our identification of those unrepaired single ventricle patients that we've seen do poorly in the past and we expect to do poorly and trying to identify those as potential VAD candidates, either as a way to get them through some period or as a as a bridge to transplant to try to improve our overall patient selection in that population. I think that we're seeing a lot of refinement in our anticoagulation techniques. I think that's in part due to the anticoagulant that we're using, but also to us learning more about the nature of the single ventricle coagulation system and how hypoxia plays into that. And certainly that's a key component of increasing our durations of support is our ability to control the coagulation system uh, effectively. And then I think the third thing is, you know, utilizing additional therapies on top of VADs to help improve the circulation. And, and one example of that would be, you know, the Fontan that comes in with some degree of diastolic dysfunction, but also has significant pulmonary vascular disease. And so you put in a VAD and do a fenestration, but that patient also is likely going to require pulmonary vasodilators. And so we've had a number of patients that have been on remodulin to help relax their pulmonary vascular resistance. And I think, you know, the natural course that I've seen in other VAD populations is that we tend to take on higher risk patients. And with that, we have to kind of expand our, our toolbox of things that we can use to, you know, optimize their circulation. And so I think that's an example of it. Well, thank you both, Dr. Maeda and Dr. Deitz, for speaking with us today about your specialty in ventricular assist devices in this patient population. We have enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, pcics.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.